Hey there, welcome to Broadcast to Post. I'm Jeff Sengpil, CTO at Keycode Media. This is the show where we interview leaders and experts in the AV, broadcast, and post-production spaces. We're giving you the inside tips to grow your media workflows and business today. Welcome everybody to the Post-NAB panel at the Keycode Media event, Post-NAB event. Uh, I'm your moderator, Deborah Kaufman, a freelance journalist, and we've assembled a great group of people here to speak about what they saw and did at NAB. I'll have them introduce themselves, starting with Sarah Priestnell. Hi, yeah, I'm Sarah Priestnell. I'm the Director of Product Management for Media Composer at Avid. Um, I'm also here <laughs> representing the Colorist Society, of which I'm on the board. So, yeah, two things. I'm Jeff Sengpil. I'm the CTO of Keycode Media. Um, went there because we, we kind of had to go there, uh, meeting with vendors, clients, all that sort of fun sort of stuff, uh, seeing all the new stuff, seeing all the hype and what's not the hype. I don't know why you're looking at me. I don't know either. You can think for yourself. I can. Go for it. Uh, Michael Comis, uh, Senior Director of Innovation over at Shift Media, and prior to that, Bebop Technology, uh, and before that, Keycode Media. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, a question for the audience. Uh, how many people here went to NAB? Oh, so a lot of you did go. Um, so I imagine the people who went to NAB are looking for insights that our panelists have, and those of you who didn't go to NAB are just looking for insights as well. Um, because it has been covered by the press. All right, well, let's start off. Um, I would love to hear from, we'll start with you, Michael. Um, what did you see at NAB? What were the buzzes that you heard? Um, tell me your experience, your general experience at NAB. Uh, it was mostly iteration over innovation. Yay, catchy phrase. Um, but I, I, post-pandemic, I think folks, uh, many companies are still figuring out what direction to go. Uh, so that, that, uh, was obviously interesting. Uh, what was also interesting is, is I think many manufacturers are scaling down their show presence to determine, you know, what's the more acronyms, what's the ROI on doing a, you know, black magic sized booth. Do we need that anymore? Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, we did see an uptick in attendance, right? We went from what 50 some odd last year to 65,000 registered. The 65, that's always a slightly uh, that's why I said misleading, registered. misleading number. Yeah. Um, what I also found was very interesting is that um, although no one had a lot of printed material on it because it's so new, it's AI, everything, everywhere, all at once. And, and what's very interesting is that it's so new that only the companies that have been doing this for a while can really stake their name to it. Everyone else is uh, uh, saying, well, we're patching into an API somewhere and here's AI. Uh, so I'm actually more interested to see what is shown at IBC later on this year and then uh, NAB next year. Do you think we're going to see products that were promised at NAB at IBC? Well, there's always vapor, right? Uh, but yeah, I, I think we'll start to see something. I, th I, I think the really big thing that a lot of us want is the ability to use AI tools without having to use the cloud. And being able to use localized models and products is what we're going to start to see now that it's easier to train. And I think that's where we're going to see. I, I keep thinking of the phrase uh, for Back to the Future, uh, when this baby hits 88, you're going to see some serious shit. And when models get localized, you're going to see some serious shit. So uh, is that what you were actually looking for at NAB or were you looking for other things? Well, you know, I think going for a while, you, you kind of uh, can pass a booth and within about 30 seconds have a, well, is this a retread? Is this just rebranding something that they had last year? Uh, but that was mainly what I was looking for. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right, Jeff. 
Well, I, to, to do my own catchphrase, it was uh, an evolutionary year rather than a revolutionary year, uh, which means next year may be revolutionary. We can, we can hope. Um, one of the things I saw was a lot of um, buzz overhang with cloud. So everybody's talking about how they can do all this cloud wonderfulness. We can, we can get there. We can talk to your hyperscaler. We can do all this, or we can do it in the cloud. Uh, and here's how to pull it out. But at the end of the day, um, I had some interesting conversations with some folks who have extremely large current hyperscaler presences, and they're talking about scaling back. Interesting. Uh, did they tell you why they're thinking about scaling back? Well, I mean, a lot of a lot of things. What what happened there was people had their cost for this much to do it on prem, um, and they realized this much was left in you know this would be what it would cost to do in the cloud. So they brought this down, and then this went up slightly. And now this is all that's left, and it's this big. So therefore, maybe if we, I mean, the pendulum is just going to swing back. So it's ju just a different equation of the hybrid. Different equation of a hybrid and, and, okay, we're paying someone else to do this. Why don't we pay ourselves and then possibly build out our own private cloud somewhere? So I wouldn't be surprised to see folks, you know, out in the desert setting up solar and, and data farms uh, and beginning to roll out you know, clouds that will be, you know, private for certain companies or a certain small group of companies. And those folks have a control in how they're secured and how they're accessed. And we did indeed, I moderated two panels at NAB and one of them there was a, a private cloud, a company that had developed a private cloud that was there. So was that what you were looking for at NAB or were you not looking for anything in no, particular? No, that, that's what I ran into. Um, one of the things I was, uh, you know, looking for was, you know, some, just anything that's of, of interest. So I'm one of those people that will go and, and we see the, you know, the small booths on the outside. Um, one of the things I, I found that was very interesting is um, Dante AV. So uh, basically, it's the equivalent of the Dante equivalent of NDI. Um, Dante took a big hit over the pandemic because of delivery issues on chipsets, but now they've got a whole video side. So that that kind of leaves an interesting question of another player in that IP video space. So NDI has been around for a long time. IP2110 is the standard, um, and that's that's the other thing that's coming along. Uh, the other interesting thing I saw was um, Blackmagic had some very compelling 2110 products at Blackmagic price points, which means that 2110 is being democratized. All of those price points are going to come down across the board. So, and, and the thing we've also always seen is when Blackmagic begins to uh, adopt something in scale. It's coming. There's no stopping it. And I do want to talk about um, SMPTE 2110 a little later in, in greater depth. But before we get there, Sarah, you have you were there with two hats. You want to talk about yeah. which hat first? <laughs> well, first of all, I'll say I didn't get to see very much NAB because I was mostly stuck on the Avid booth. But um, yeah, I'm mostly interested in, in more of the kind of how uh, is there anything that's going to help editors and colorists move their craft forward nowadays? And you know, without going into AI, because we'll probably touch on that later. Yeah, I mean, those kind of tool sets are kind of set nowadays, I think, really. You can you can kind of automate some of the things within editing workflows and color workflows, but the actual tool set isn't going to change that much and didn't seem to change that much this year. So, um, you know, the other thing is obviously, you know, we're in a world now where everyone's working, you know, a lot of people are working remotely. That's kind of how it's going to be now, talking to our customers 
people are not going back to the office. Editors have moved out of LA long ago. They're not coming back. So they're still looking for really efficient ways of managing that workflow. So yeah, that's kind of what I, what I walked away with. So I'm curious what else, since um, you, you know, you say you were stuck in the Avid booth, but you talked to an awful lot of people, I imagine. Uh, aside from remote is here to stay, what other themes yeah, I mean, do you hear? The, the same thing as Jeff really about cloud. I mean, it's I, I always laugh because when people talk about cloud, they always tend to like look up to the sky or point up to the sky still like it's an actual cloud, right? So, you know, like, but yeah, the same thing. Like I think private cloud is, is definitely becoming a thing. People are realizing just how that it's expensive to go to the cloud in many cases. So there's a more efficient way of doing things. People also want, you know, they don't want to be stuck with one particular cloud provider. They want options. So yeah, those kind of, and just a lot of talk about just open standards as well. Um, things like open timeline IO um, in the editing world, um, just ways to get from accepting that, you know, there is no one monolithic company that offers everything. So we need to be able to move back and forth between different products easily. Yes. That was another big topic, so. Interesting. Well, when people ask me what the cloud is, I always just say it's other people's servers. Um, could be down the street from you for all you know. Um, <clears throat> by the way, we, we're definitely open to questions. Let's go for a little while, but if you have a question, raise your hand and I'll, I'll come back to you. Um, so I'm, we are talking about companies and clouds and every other piece of equipment in the facility talking, talking to each other. I mean, we, we haven't been a black box industry for a while. How is that going in terms of um, how easy is it to have uh, talk to other clouds, pieces of gear, talk to other pieces of gear? Is that, are we where we need to be or is there still progress that needs to be made? And if so, what? what? There, there is progress that needs to be made because when we're talking about clouds and hyperscalers, uh, those other people's computers, they, they make their money by getting charges for the data coming in and the data coming out. So in order to do a multi-cloud kind of environment, you're taking it out of one and putting it into another. So there's the pound of flesh to take it out and the pound of flesh to put it in. And that ends up being a little bit more cost than most people want to bear. Um, it's not as simple as, hey, we make an extra copy of the LTO tapes and we send them to the you know other side of the country like, like we used to do. Um, you, just we can do it a lot faster these days. Yeah, the concept of, of egress is is just a, a slap in the face, and it's bullshit. And and I'm uh, just furious that we we still have these uh, big three or big four providers that are still nickel and diming, not just to download, but hey, if you want to move to another one of our regions, even in the same provider, oh, we're still going to nick you. I mean, it's if if any of them are watching this, it's bullshit and stop it. Um, the and and I'm I'm not you know just hey this will be a good clip on social media it's it's true and you're gonna lose you're gonna start to lose more clients because of it uh, the other part is that a majority of the the longstanding kind of I don't want to say elder statesmen uh, in our industry have developed uh, not just looking into open timeline open review but also the concept of hey we're gonna have an SDK or an OP, or an API where uh, as long as you hire someone, you know, uh, that has a couple years of experience coding in Python, right, can write scripts that will allow you to do that. For Resolve, for example, the free version, you can do Python scripts, right? Uh, the $300 version, you can do Node.js, right, which are not complicated languages. So there's quite a few applications out there that have a, an ability to be extensible. And I think as someone said now, I think uh, Mark Radonis may have even said this, if you're going to uh, uh, go and get a, a degree in film, are, are you going to a history of cinema class or are you taking a programming class? 
right? So I think we're going to see Python. a lot. Yeah, so I, I think the folks that are, uh, uh, I think um, uh, Eves last night called it a hacker, right? Not in the traditional sense of being a hacker, but someone who understands the basis of the zeros and ones, but also the creativity to kind of meld those two pieces together. I think those are the folks are, are what we're going to need moving forward to make these applications that are extensible via API to tie them together to third-party products. Well, Michael, you were the one that mentioned that people are pulling back from the cloud. You were the one that said that, right? Pulling back from the cloud somewhat. Actually, oh, I, I you, mentioned you that. You did. But. Sorry, Jeff. You said that. So I'm wondering, are you know the cloud companies, they like that money they get from egress and ingress. What's going to push them to give up that piece of you know revenue? Well, the, the, one of the things that we've always had as an industry is a bias for our own stuff. So the fact that my data from the top TV show is living on your storage should make you pleased that it's there and therefore you should charge me less. And basically the answer from folks like AWS is uh, DoorDash, dude, I'm making tons of money with DoorDash. Why do I care? It's data at that point to them. They There's nothing in particular that's extremely cool and great marketing for them. Um, they want to be able to say that they can do all these different workflows, but data is data and being able to recognize revenue from having people act on their own data is their business model. And they're beholden to their own shareholders to make the most amount of money possible from their business model. So I'm not surprised. And while, yes, I agree with you, it is, it is bullshit that people are getting charged this. It's because we haven't done our own setups to, to get, get to this point. So if we've got something that's industry centric to begin with, I think the, the model will be different. It's just gonna be a question of how large it can scale because the one thing the hyperscalers do have is complete redundancy and uh, a reliability that not many other people on the planet can touch. I think there's one more one more thing to that. It's, it's not just the redundancy and storage, it's that AWS, as an example, has what, 64,000 different uh, services that run on there and and all that you're paying is contributing to those services which you can only get on AWS. It's the so, old story of computer companies not understanding M&E. But I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think when things start, be, uh, the services that AWS and others are offering in the cloud, uh, uh, in fact, I think your boss Jeff would said virtualization, right? Not cloud, but virtualization. When stuff starts to become local, and you don't have to go to these cloud providers for those services. I think that's when you're going to start to see the prices not go up, but stay so we're kind talking of where about, they are. We're talking about edge computing here. But let me, before mm -hmm. you respond, Jeff, I want to uh, ask uh, you, Sarah, how this is this kind of uh, communication between locations. I mean, there's a lot of remote editing. There's color grading in the cloud now. How is that impacting those parts of the industry? Well, I, th I think it's just the norm now, right? At least for editing, colors colors a little different because you know being in the room, you know, on a big for certain applications, you need to be in the room with a big screen, etc. But editing, as I say, you know, people just you need to access their their data, whether it's a proxy or the actual file, quickly wherever they are in the world. I mean, there's people editing in every location now, so that's it's it's just got to happen. It's just they've got to you know it's editing. It needs to respond as if they're in the same room with the. With, you know, if, if they're in the facility, you know, then there's the whole thing about review. How do you deal with review and approval as well? You know, even, even if, you know, I think what I'm seeing now is even if the editor's in the facility, no one else is going into the facility. The director's not going in, the producer's not going in. So you need to have a way of, of showing, showing your content, you know, 
color calibrated, hopefully, to wherever they are in the world. Um, so, which is, you know, that was a thing before the pandemic. That's that's not just a pandemic thing, right? I mean, you know, James Cameron was out there in Malibu watching his dailies at the, before the pandemic, but it's just become the norm now that you know facilities are just they're, they're just maybe they maybe they become the data center now, and everyone else is remote. Maybe there's just a you know a review room in the facility, and everyone else is gone. Is there anything new in review and approval applications? Um, yeah, the, I think there's there's lots of new things. I mean, Michael's probably more of an expert than me on those kind of applications, but uh, we're doing some things as well um, at Avid within from within Media Composer. Um, you can use things like SRT to get a really high quality stream out to people. Um, but yeah, there's 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 lots of different options for review and approval nowadays. Okay, and before we get around to that, uh, I would like to ask a kind of color grading specific question, which is, what monitors are these people using, and how are uh, they calibrated? That's a, that's a great question. I think it's that's the kind of the wild west a little bit. I mean, I think people are using everything from an LG TV to an iPad to, to a Sony calibrator. You know, if they're lucky enough to to have to, their, their company has provided them with a calibrated Sony or something, yeah, but. Otherwise, it's it's a it's an LG or it's a it's so that an iPad. so that problem remains. I mean, this has been a problem all along, and no solutions in um, monitoring. Yeah. No, I mean, there's just yeah, there's no, there's no less expensive solutions out there. That that's part of the problem. So the the Sony monitors that are the new ones are the X thirty one hundreds. ISO has some interesting new stuff that's about to come out as well. Um, the the thing is, all of these extremely calibratable, very high quality monitors are OLED, organic LEDs. These things are grown like plants. They're grown. And this is why they have something that's called bad yields. So the, the crop was bad this year. Crap, I guess you're not getting as many panels as you thought you would. Um, and that's one of the, where one of the challenges has been. Um, folks are also, you know, the, the LG... Um, was it the C2 series currently or the G2 series? They're, they're pretty good. It's just a, it's a question of what level of um, requirements you're needing to get to. And those requirements are usually dictated by the folks you're delivering to. So for a long time, you know, Netflix would say, it's got to be a Sony. It's got to be an X, X300 or an X310. And then they went to, well, Dolby needs to certify what monitor is going to work. And now they're saying, well, here's the specs you need to kind of fit. So it's beginning to democratize and begin thing, to make things a little easier. But the, the thing that kind of lays across all of that is calibration. Does this monitor match this monitor? Does that match this monitor? So being able to say that these are set across the border are great. An iPad Pro is a calibratable monitor. Uh, an X300, you can calibrate them next to each other, but when you ship it, all bets are off. Just well, a little bump Exactly, and isn't that the holy grail? Otherwise, you don't know if you're all seeing the same thing. Correct. Standards and, are great because everybody has them. Yeah, there you go. I mean, exactly. how far away are we from this holy grail so you know that what you're seeing is what everybody else is seeing? Do we ever get there, Sarah? I mean, it's sad to say it's it's better that they all look the same, even if they're wrong, than, if the, than one of them's right and the rest are wrong. So... You can always fix it at the very end of the process. Right. Oh, tweak it a little bit. There we go. You mean fix it in post? Yeah. Fix it, fix it in post post. Fix it in deliverables. Michael, I, what, what, what do you have to say about review, uh, review and approval? And, you know, the monitors we're looking at, there's new stuff you said? 
well, the monitors I can't I can't really speak to. I've, I've been kind of removed from that side of the industry for a while. But what we've seen, especially during the pandemic, is that um, the live review and approve from your timeline. There only used to be a player or two out there, excuse me, a manufacturer or two that would do that, or you'd have to invest in hardware. And what we've seen is that has democratized the point where you're running software on your edit system. And that is then using the built-in SRT and Avid, which has been there for, for years, if you didn't know that. Uh, and then things like, you know, you can do that out of Premiere. You can't do it out of Blackmagic. I don't know why. Oh, because they have their own product that does that. My bad. Uh, but Flame. For example, you could do that, but but these these solutions used to be hundreds of dollars, and now we're down to freemium models, twenty dollars, fifty dollars, hundred dollars a month, and you can get eight bit two six four, which is good for editorial, right? Cuts only, See, not and, cuts only, but and creative. That, that's editing. why I found Dante AV to be so so interesting. Um, they were talking eighty milliseconds of delay between Vegas and Australia, and then when I went to chat with our fr friends, I don't from, believe that. That's that's what they said. Um, physics. You're bouncing it off a cloud. So that, it's, that, but that, it's physics. I, I, Miles. I'm just telling you what. It's I was a law. Told. It's not I a recommendation. Physics is a law. There were or maybe like, it's a standard. More like guidelines and actual rules. Um, but the the thing you were talking about when I went to talk with our friends at Aja is Aja. Twelve bit color. Aja. Aja. Yeah. Just, Don't be that guy. It's Jeff. that Chicago one. Don't be that guy. You can join me. Um, Twelve bit color. So 12-bit color, very low latency, that's definite high-end review and approval. So all I need is a correctly calibrated monitor on any side of the world. And if that price point's a lot lower, that's something that begins to make sense for a lot of people. It's something that, you know, I was doing before the pandemic too. So but at a much higher price point. The thing I, I do want to mention, and especially during the, the financial crunch that's going on right now, is, is we're seeing a lot of companies look at, I'm paying. It's like when you look at your on-demand bill. Oh crap! I'm paying for Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, and we want to go back to kind of the cable methodology, which is you pay one. No, I know I don't like it either. But but now people are saying, well, we'll bundle a bunch of uh, like Sling, we'll bunch a bunch of services together and for one price. And I think a lot of companies. I shouldn't say I think a lot of companies are looking at. I'm paying for this on-demand solution and this live solution and this asset management solution and this collaboration solution. Can't just one provider give me like 80 or 90% of what I need and then I pay one company. So I think we're going to uh, we're going to start to see many companies saying I'm going to either acquire or develop variations on what we do already so they can serve more of the market. So you don't have to be nickel and dimed by paying for 20 different services uh, that all don't play together. But what if AWS? Is there doesn't? an is there an avid point of view on this kind of idea of offering soup to nut services? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at things with uh, with SRT and being able to go directly out of Media Composer, but we're also opening up. We've, we've been told we're an API first company now. So, um, you know, we've, we've got a panel SDK coming out where people can write an HTML panel within Media Composer. And as, as Michael said, that kind of opens up the world to, um, you know, developers. You know, we, we, we realize that we can't develop everything ourselves, right? So there's a lot of smart people out there. So why not use them to write write things for us too? So, yeah, that's that's the future, I think. We can talk about that, Sarah? We can talk. We have, and we can still. Yeah. Okay. What, what questions do you have for Sarah, Michael? Oh, no. No, I've got my questions answered. I just know I can talk about it. So we'll talk afterwards, but that's great. All right, so let's talk, let's talk about No, did I say something? <laughs> I don't Cut think you're going to get in trouble. So what other, are we talked about, have we finished our talking about cloud was definitely one of the trends at NAB 2023. Um, 
have we fully investigated that that topic of what we saw at NAB with regard to the cloud? Is there a question out there? Okay. How many people here would are interested in working in the cloud? Because you may be actors, you may not be interested. For how many of those is egress and ingress costs the deciding factor keeping you off of the cloud? So pretty much everybody, uh, or not everybody perhaps, but a lot of people. Um, how many people think that there is nothing that they do in their professional lives that would uh, would push them to work in the cloud? And how many of those use Outlook or Gmail or Apple Mail? Exactly. Guess what? You're already in the cloud. You're already in the cloud, exactly. See, it's the true. thing is, it's a question of use case. When it's packet and it is, it's, it's inherent, it's part of the solution, and you don't have to think about it, it's all included in that cost, not a big deal. Right. So, like was mentioned before, if we package all of this stuff together and offer it as a simple solution, hey, this will do X, Y, and Z for you. It doesn't matter do, do we have to wait? We, do we have to wait for Black Magic to? And no. there's, a question, there's a question up here. She's saying for people that um, it's great to be able to go into these solutions that offer all the cloud services, but what about clients who want to use their own storage? Good, fast, cheap. You only ever get to choose two, yeah. and True. you cannot run cloud services on top of your own storage at scale. It's just not going. So when to you happen. say at scale, what? What I've amounts got, are we I've talking got about? Ten editors across the country. I need to feed them from my location here in North Hollywood. Um, what kind of pipe am I going to need up to the cloud to do that? A gigantic one, and then I'm going to have to have a service that's going to run on top of that. Something like LucidLink that will do that. LucidLink will run on your own storage for archive. LucidLink will not run on your own storage for editorial. You need to have a cloud-based setup for that because those folks are scaled. So it's kind of like, I've got this one chair that offers this stuff versus all the chairs that offer this stuff. Sarah, it's you were nodding too. What is it? You, you were no, nodding I, your agreeal? Yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah. So, uh, it's not a good answer, but does that answer your question? <laughs> not what you the, wanted to hear. <laughs> one of my cardinal rules when I, uh, in the industry is you never make someone bad for someone, make someone feel bad for the tech they've purchased prior, right? Because there was a reason they purchased it. So normally when I have that question, it's, well, why did you go with insert lower cost cloud storage here, right? Nothing bad on Wasabi at all, but they're a lower cost solution. Well, because of cost. Okay. Okay. That's great. If it's cost that you're concerned with, then you stick with that. But if you want to pay the premium of using cloud services, then you have to be on a super scaler. You have to be on something that's not just storage. Good. And that's fast. Yeah, so sure. obviously the costs yeah. of that are what's uh, to the person who brought up the question about adoption. I mean, it seems like the, the cost of adoption is still too high for all but larger companies. I think we are so accustomed to the rental model here, especially in LA, which is all you can eat, right? You rent something for six weeks, you can use it 24 seven, or you can use it four hours a week, right? doesn't matter. You're paying one price. We don't have that methodology of all you can eat with the cloud yet. And no one has been able to find a good, better, best kind of package plan. So you have predictable costs. And that tends to be something that, that sh limits folks aside from enterprise from adopting at scale. But the other question here is, how many people in this audience right now are from the finance department? <laughs> oh, yeah. And guess Nobody. what? So then me talking to you about how um, operational expenses can be depreciated out of your taxes, taken right off the top at the end of the calendar year for the entire cost versus the CapEx, which needs to be depreciated over multiple years, that just fell on deaf ears. And guess what? If you talk to your CFO, 
that's an in, in, interesting and compelling discussion that they are more than willing to have because they don't have to spend all that money and they get, they don't have to give it to uncle Sam and uncle Gavin. I've been telling your boss for 15 years now to have a CFO summit to discuss those very things. So Are, Kavanaugh, if you're listening, do it. <laughs> Pin on that and move on. Uh, National Association of Broadcasters. This was a show that seemed like it was National Association of Streamers a little bit. I mean, streaming was very, you're not so sure about that, Jeff, but there was a lot of streaming, new streaming solutions, less expensive streaming solutions. What did you guys, what is, what is Avid's, where does Avid fit in this whole thing of streaming content? Is there, is there anything that you do that kind of serves that market? Um, I mean, it's all content to us. So we, we're yeah. really agnostic, I'd say, to, to what kind of content it is. Um, Did you have a lot of customers who say they're working on streaming content? So you, are you by streaming? You mean sort of YouTubers, that kind of content? Not well, any not any kind Netflix. of any I kind mean, of streaming. The big streamers are obviously big customers of ours, but yeah, I mean the Netflix is the Amazons, but yeah, there's also you know content comes from everywhere nowadays, right? So, okay, all right. So you're still the the tool of choice, and yeah, of these. I mean, but I would say you know I think um, you know the streaming world is is kind of in a in slight turmoil at the moment, right? Um, you know, there's 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 almost too much content out there. They're all competing for the same viewers. We're all wondering why we're spending so much on all these subscriptions that we don't use. We're jumping around from one to the other. So yeah. I think there's going to be some kind of fallout. I think. Well, I, I the predict there will be consolidation. And I just read yesterday that free advertising supported TV fast is definitely on the rise. Right. Right. So, but anyway. then again, when I watch that, I get, you know, every time you see an ad, you get annoyed. Right. And we forget that we used to, we used to sit through that all the time, but now we're like, oh, this an ad. I can't do that. Well, so Jeff, you, you had an immediate reaction to the, the, the thing there is there's two sides to that. One, one is like, well, yeah, it, it doesn't matter what the deliverable is. We're still using the gear that's on the show floor to create said content. But then I realized that, um, you know, I was in a, a meeting with, uh, one of the larger router companies, and they were talking about their cloud offerings and how they worked with one of the um, the folks here, uh, the VizVector, which is new tech in the cloud, connects to their in environment to then have a fully cloud-based fast channel. You can spin that up in no time flat. So that company also has ad insertion that's available. You've got the whole enchilada right there I've got live production. I've got the fast channel that's run here. So I now have like no local content, news, maybe weather and sports for the hour or two hours that I really need to have it. And I've got the rest of the pre-programmed content that's coming from other people. I now have the entire thing completely spun up and ready to go. And being able to do that in the space of a couple hours. I mean, how long does it take to build a television station today? It's going to take nine, 12 months to physically do that. We're talking about being able to get to the same result, to get to the same style of audience in, in no time flat, basically. That's what I think the technology has brought us. And, and Jeff, did you see a lot of products at this, at NAB 2023 that enable that? Um, yes. And they're all up in the cloud, which <laughs> I mean, because the, because the, because those hyperscalers have the, the resources to do that, do this stuff. They have all the, the compute and all that other fun stuff that allows us to, to function that way. Okay, Michael, what are your thoughts on this? I, I need to bow out a little bit. Uh, I, unfortunately, to be complete honesty, I didn't have a chance to check out a lot of the fast stuff. Uh, so 
I acquiesce my time. I mean, it just seemed to me that we were seeing a lot uh, more emphasis on streaming at this show than I had in past shows. So are there any questions out there about streaming, about your streaming habits, about where you see streaming going? Is anybody watching any of these free ad-supported um, uh, TV channels aside yeah. from YouTube? YouTube, I give it a shot. Roku. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Roku guy, but I cut the cord a decade plus ago and I have Roku's all around our house. There's always, oh, the new channel, whether it's Pluto, right, which is a big one. And I'm always checking that to see what the content is and and just how annoying are the commercials and, and whatnot. But quite frankly, I've just popped for the what $20 a month YouTube premium, which just gets rid of ads. And that's just changed my life. Really? Yeah. Yeah, no more ads on on uh, YouTube at all for twenty dollars a month. Totally I think it's like twenty. Yeah, it's not the like sixty or eighty dollars, but like when when I sit down after dinner and my wife and I want to watch something on TV, it's oh we're going to watch oh there's a video on YouTube. Let's watch that. Watch that. No ads. Okay, all fantastic. Right. Something to think about. Um, all right, so we seem to have uh, before we get to AI, which was the big buzz of the show. I would say everything was AI everywhere. Um, Let's just touch briefly on virtual production because that is another buzzword that's been a buzzword for a while. And I saw some interesting stuff at NAB related to virtual production. And I'm wondering uh, what you saw or heard about virtual production that you think is worthy of note, that at NAB that is worthy of note for people who either didn't go to NAB or didn't see this stuff. I thought Magic Box was awesome. Yes, And Magic actually, Box. as of a week ago, it was in the Kino Flow parking lot by the Bob Hope Airport. So if it's still there, you can go take a look at it. All right. Talk Magic about Box is a, a semi-trailer that the uh, back and the sides are uh, LED walls and they fold down so you can drive a car in there and then close it up and then run any video you want on there. So when you're doing those scenes in a car, instead of doing projection or green screen, you can put them in an environment that they need to be and still get that pristine audio, but on location. Yeah. And yes, they will take the trailer to wherever you are. And their cost model was seemed to be very surprisingly low from what I understand. I didn't get those numbers. I, I don't want to uh, say them and be wrong, but um, yeah, that was the most fascinating virtual production thing that I saw. But anyway, what about you, Jeff? Um, Camera tracking. I mean, the 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 thing I saw was, uh, you know, our friends from Moses went over there and took a look at some of the stuff they were doing. Some of the other folks I did not visit at the show, um, but I, I did go to some training with our friends from Zero Density after the show. I, I don't recommend three days of training right after NAB, um, but it happened. Um, and just the, the 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 amazing stuff they're doing, not only with um, tracking cameras. And the one thing I saw was um, standard good old fashioned AG-130. It's a Panasonic PTZ camera set up and it's aimed at a video wall and it is the, the, the picture for that. So the background and the foreground are now tracking with that because the tracking setup is, is way up in the grid looking down. Looks like they cut off the head of Johnny number five and tossed it up there. I'm trying to see. I can tell who how old you are. I got it. Telling how old you are by the reference. Yeah, but the really cool stuff in terms of also uh, green screen psych walls and what they're able to do with that and set extension. So you know the walls, the the set only goes say eight feet out from the corner, but in the shot it looks like it goes out forever because you don't have to worry about that. They're only keying the the, the thing that's in front of that. So the, the abilities to get to a virtual production environment, um, it's a lot easier to do nowadays than having to 
to go out there and find someone to do it for you. So would you agree it's kind of the tools are being democratized to some extent in virtual production? Yeah, the costs are coming down. Um, the, the one thing also, um, I learned in all of that is, um, unreal is a game for the, the folks who are in the educational environment today. Um, just, just the, the speed at which you can do all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, I'm used to certain types of environments and graphics and, and effects and other things. And, and that's just not something that my head is grasping, uh, right off the bat. So being able to go through a node-based composite and do all this stuff. That's that's a, a really, really big thing for folks who are coming up in the industry, being able to get into node-based compositing and, and do all these things yourself, understanding Unreal um, and the, the other artificial worlds out there. Uh, and then the best line I heard was uh, products that are able to hallucinate pixels. <laughs> I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to credit that to the to the EVS guys. And it's the last time I got to credit it. And now I'm going to take that one as my own. All right. So Unreal, I mean, how do you, who do you recommend uh, gets fluent on Unreal Engine? Um, if you are in live production at all, that's, you, you want to know that. You, you definitely do. Uh, if you are a post-production person, it might be a nice to have to understand how some of that works. But then again, if you take a standard computer that normally runs... Um, a nonlinear editor and try to throw Unreal at it, it's going to curl up its toes. Sarah, you had something to say about no, this? No, I just, I just find it interesting because the CTO of Unreal is someone I've known since the 90s, and he was, he's been talking about this stuff since the 90s, so I just think it's really... Lebrary? No, it's uh, Kim Library. Oh, yeah. And I just think it's so cool that, he's, that it's actually happening because he was talking back about it in the 90s because he was a big gamer, <laughs> but he worked in the film business, and he could see how it was all going to come together, and it took a while, but... Yeah, we're, we're there. And I, I totally agree with Jeff. If you want to work in live production, you got to, or, or in effects nowadays, you've got to, you got to learn it. And Unreal has been amazing. Or Epic Games has been amazing about making it accessible to everyone. There's something else I wanted to mention quickly that uh, no one really saw on the show floor because it wasn't showcased anywhere. But uh, the gentleman who started the company came to our booth and showed it to us. And it deals with both Unreal uh, as well as live production. Uh, is anyone here familiar with Lucas Wilson? Yeah, if you don't know, you're not paying attention. Lucas Wilson is awesome. Uh, he has a new product that's in beta called Arc Runner, A-R-K-R-U-N-R. And that allows you to shoot uh, yourself or, or anyone on green screen and then superimpose it into a uh, 360 environment uh, on stage or in an amphitheater. And you can use it for high school plays. You can use it for uh, commencement speeches. You can use it for uh, bands. And it has music that is uh, responsive to the, to the music and crowd noise and all these virtual environments all done in Unreal. And it's like under 100 bucks. It's like free or 50 bucks or 100 bucks. Uh, and I think it's going to be a game changer for folks who want to get in live production, but don't know Unreal, uh, don't know how to code, don't have the $10,000 computer to, to run these things. And it's one of the, by far one of the coolest things I saw. Well, that's the thing. You don't need a $10,000 computer to run these things. You need a nice kick-ass gaming PC, lots of GPU. So that's the thing. Just keep in the back, back of your mind. If you want to get into this really cool virtualized set and production stuff, nice gaming computer will do the trick for you. One of the interesting things PC. I saw in the virtual production world is I went, I attended a panel where um, somebody from USC's Entertainment Technology Center discussed the making of a movie where there is a lot of virtual production. And they worked with a new company called Mesh, James Blevins, 
in that company, where they are kind of like the line producers for virtual production from the script. They will go through your script and they will say, you're gonna save money here. Don't bother here. You're gonna save money here. They will notate in your script all the possible places where virtual production will save you money or save you time. And then they produce those parts of it. And I think that was uh, a brilliant thing because you know, people sometimes jump on a trend and then find out if they're not saving the money or the time they thought or not ending up with the kind of shots they thought. So I see that where mesh is, other people will probably follow. Produce it in previs. That's that's brilliant. Yes, exactly. Any questions on virtual production before we move to uh, uh, not last or not least, but last um, AI? I think we have. Yeah, we have got time to talk about AI. I mean, AI was everywhere at NAB. You'd have to have been under a rock not to see AI. AI. First of all, is it really AI or is it still machine learning? Well, I mean, that, that's the whole thing. You've, you've taught a machine with machine learning to do certain things, and now it is artificially intelligent to do those things for you. So I saw a really interesting um, piece of equipment out there uh, or set up where you, you, you basically throw a whole ton of footage at it, and you say, find me these logos. And, the, you know, because we were at the show, someone said, well, find the Adobe logo. And it went through hours of basketball footage, you know, it just presented, oh, there's the Adobe logo. It's the top of the backboard on a slam dunk camera shot. It's like really, really tiny. Human probably would have never, ever seen that. It's 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 amazing what that has the ability to do. And I think it's really more about we need to focus on the parts of AI that are going to, A, make the jobs we have to do easier which will help us be more productive or maybe get more time back, but time is always soaked up with something else or automate those boring tasks. Like, Oh, find the logo. Oh God, I got to find the logo. And I got to look at 30 hours of footage to find this thing. Boop. Oh, there it is already right. ready to go. Sarah is representing a, a company and the Colorist Society. So what is Avid offering in terms of AI tools and what are Colorists using in terms of AI tools? Um, I mean, we, we, we're looking at script-based editing. We already have script-based editing. So we're looking at <clears throat> putting, that's the first place where we're looking at AI ML. Uh, the engineers tell me I have to call it ML, not AI. But, um, but it's interesting. We talked to a lot of editors and assistant editors and we were really scared when we started talking to them that particularly assistant editors would be like, hey, stop, you're trying to take away my job here. Like, and they were not at all. They were all like, please, please do anything you can to get rid of all this stuff that we have to do that we don't really like. It's not editing, it's data management or it's, it's whatever. As Jeff said, it's going through hours of footage looking for things. Take that away. We want our lives back. You know, we, we're, we're working seven days a week. There's already not enough of us. There's already a shortage of, of editors and assistant editors. So whatever you can do to, to incre increase our productivity and get rid of those menial things that we don't like doing, please do it. So that's what we're, that's kind of the direction we're going. In terms of color, I think there's some really cool stuff you can do with AI. I think it, but I was thinking about it. I was involved when Digital Intermediate came, came out and we talked to a lot of cinematographers and they were like, oh my God, you're going to ruin my life. You know, they were like, you're, you're, we're going to be cut out of the creative process. We're, colorists are going to do everything. No, filmmaking is a collaboration. They 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 work with a colorist. Um, same thing with AI. You know, we can you can get to a place, but you're never going to be able to replace a colorist with AI because it's about the relationship. It's about working with somebody and their vision and your vision working together. You can't 
I don't, not yet. And and AI cannot do that yet. So there are places where it has, it has a place, but um, it's not, it's not a kind of the high end creative place. Thank you so much, Michael, your thoughts on all the AI that was visible at NEB. Yeah, I have to mute about 90% of it because we'll be here all day. Uh, The one thing I want to throw out there that we have to accept is that AI is 4K, meaning we all say 4K, but we really are talking about UHD, right? So AI is going to become a catch term for any kind of machine learning. Accept it. Deal with it. Don't be that person at a party who says, no, AGI. Don't be that person. (laughs) The products uh, that I saw at NAB that were fantastic for uh, things like this, um, the first one was uh, Color Lab, C-O-L-O-U-R, that you you make it better. The correct spelling. Uh, is fantastic. Uh, I'm partly colorblind. I never learned to read scopes. And uh, I was working uh, on a project uh, for Shift Media and the shots didn't match. And I uh, uh, grabbed the project, learned it in Color Lab. It gave me suggestions on grades. I could say, look like this, look like Wes Anderson. No, I wouldn't do that. But, But have it look like certain looks. And it did a essentially a lot. It did a transformation of all the Ari Raw, the, it understood the camera science, then put the, 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 the look on there and it worked really, really well. So Color Lab, check colorlab.ai. The other one, and everyone's heard me talk about this, so I apologize, uh, and they're not giving me a kickback, they should, is a company called Gray Meta, G-R-A-Y-M-E-T-A. They have a product called Curio. Curio uh, is uh, presents as a web page, but on the back end has 50 roughly 50 different AI engines to do uh, OCR, uh, recognize speech, will do speech to text, do facial grouping and recognition, uh, can find uh, 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 bars or silence, all these different specially tuned AI engines. Or Adobe logos. Or Adobe logos. And it can find all this for you. And then also as a panel now in Premiere where you can search for things and then download that section of that clip that would take you hours to find. And they're, they're now calling it, they have a product called Curio Anywhere, which you can run on-prem or on your own private cloud. So you don't have to pay the cloud providers to do this. And for uh, uh, content that is very secure, you don't want that talking to the cloud. So you can have that sectioned off and running in your own environment. And those tags can then feed into your asset management environment if you have one. Uh, that, that's what I was talking about. Curio yeah. is a very hot product. Yeah. Any any last questions? I think we're kind of out of time, but I want to make sure that, are we out of time, Matt? Uh, you said five minutes, so it's about five minutes. Do we have any last questions? Anyone else wants to fight outside? Anybody want to fight outside? I, for one, welcome our robot <laughs> overlords. Yes, you. Well, outside. We'll take it outside, right? Um, so any, are you going to NAB 2024? And what do you hope to see there? I, yeah, we'll, we'll be there. I think uh, no idea what we'll be seeing there. It's the spring. It's Vegas. <laughs> Why not? I'm looking forward to South Hall lower again, and hopefully the bathrooms will bit better. Um, hey, all the guys know, right? Uh, and I think a lot of the AI vapor uh, will uh, have solidified and against. Condensed. I'm sorry, condensed, condensed. congealed. Uh, and again, as, I, as I've been saying, when these models become localized and we'll start to see products that are shipped with their own localized models where you don't have to pay per API call, you're just using it. I think that's when we're going to see, we're going to see a lot of that next year. So are we going to see this edge computing kind of solutions then in the future? No, no. When I say localized, you I mean, mean, it's running on a server in your own 
cloud tenant or at your office in your machine room. So you're, we're going to see that, you think, next NAB? It's already right yeah, now. Like, for example, isn't Adobe for their uh, speech to text that was in the cloud and now it's localized. Okay. So and that's running in their they're in the software application. So okay. we're going to see that a lot more. And that's the thing. Those 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 things that are on prem, you then if you need to have it do something more, you open it up to the cloud, train it and then cut that connection. And then it now knows those new things. The new libraries are in place. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Keycode Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. See you next time, folks.